Hello, and welcome to the Taking Control of Your Diabetes podcast. I'm Dr. Steve Edelman. I'm normally joined by my co-host, Dr. Jeremy Pettis, but he is not here today. But we have a very special guest, a long, long-term friend and colleague, Dr. Bill Polonsky, who is a clinical psychologist uh, specializing in the behavioral and emotional issues of diabetes and president of the Behavioral Diabetes Institute. So before I let Bill even say one word, I want to tell you about our topic today. It is called Myth Busters, Misconceptions About Diabetes. And it really is an important topic because it actually relates to another podcast that Bill and I did recently on diabetes etiquette, coming down to misperceptions, not having enough knowledge about diabetes. Uh, but this this podcast is really for people with diabetes that may not be um, thinking correctly about certain issues in diabetes. Bill, welcome. Thanks, Steve. I'm really glad to be here. Well, let's jump into it. And by the way, you mentioned this is for people with diabetes. I hate to tell you this, but this might be useful for some healthcare providers as well who, believe me, don't know that much about diabetes and think they do. So let's okay. address some of them as well. All right. All right. Well, thank you. We will, we, for all you ignorant healthcare providers listening, uh, we don't, we don't say names on this podcast. Uh, okay, let's let's go to one of the most important issues that, oh, controlling diabetes just isn't that tough. That's why most people with diabetes have their numbers in a good range. You know, the reason we wanted to talk about this particular issue is we know there's so many people out there who really feel like, oh, I'm such a loser, I'm such a failure with my diabetes because, you know, my A1C is feels like it's too high and I'm struggling, et cetera, et cetera. And it seems like probably everybody else is doing a great job. So I think it's important for you and I to do some level setting and talk about some important facts. So here's the fact. Most people with diabetes aren't doing that great. And so if you're struggling, you should know you're in the majority. And let's get specific about that. We know that an often recommended goal for someone, say, with type 1 diabetes is to have an A1C under 7%. And probably from the best large national study from our missing colleague, Dr. Jeremy Pettis, as first <laughs> author, we know that the percentage of people with type 1 diabetes who have an A1C at that goal, in that safe place, under 7.0%, it's only 20% of people with type 1 diabetes. So if you're not there yet and you have type 1 and you're feeling like a complete loser, actually you're in the vast majority of people with type 1, 80% of them have that A1C over 7.0%. And we know from that study that the average A1C in that group is about 8.2, I think, 8.2%. That doesn't mean you should be happy about that. It doesn't mean you want to, want to take positive action. But if you're having a tough time and you're struggling, just know you're part of a big club. And we can, talk, of course, talk endlessly about all the reasons that's true and talk about what to do about it. But we just want people to realize that. Yeah. Well, diabetes is hard. And um, if it wasn't hard, we wouldn't even have this organization. We wouldn't need to be around. Um, it's Type 1 is different than type 2, and we'll talk about type 2 in a second. But, uh, you know, even people with advanced technologies have a hard time reaching their glycemic goals. And even the 20% that did get their A1C below 7%, many of them had excess hypoglycemia. So, 
it's just not an easy disease to treat. And with technology improving, I think things are getting better, but, uh, you know, really too slow for me. Really good point. So let's just finish this and talk about type 2 diabetes. So again, if you're someone with type 2 thinking, oh, I'm just, I'm a loser too. Why can't I get all my numbers in a safe range? Um, So probably the best data comes from this large study called the NHANES study that you're familiar with, which is a national sample of people with type 2 diabetes. And we know that um, actually about half of them have their A1C in a safe place, but you know, in, and we'll get into this larger issue in a moment, that we really want to look at are the number of people who not just have their A1C, their average blood sugar in a safe place, but also do they have their blood pressure reaching target goals? Do they have their cholesterol levels reaching target goals? Because we know how important those are as well. And the, and the best evidence suggests it's less than 30% of type 2s in this country have all three of those numbers, A1C, blood pressure, and cholesterol numbers, at target or in a safe place. So again, if you feel like you're struggling, know that 70% of folks with type 2 aren't there yet either. Doesn't mean we shouldn't keep trying, but just know this is tough. Right, and the reason why it's higher is because when you take people with type 2, you're getting them at all different stages. For many people with type 2, when they first get diabetes, you know, their control is a lot easier. They secrete their own insulin. They may only need one medication. But as time goes on, it gets tougher and tougher. Now, the other thing that you and I have published on um, is that there is an issue with uh, taking so many medications as someone with type 2. You know, think about it. If you have type 2, you might take one or two pills. You might take one or two different injectables like Ozembic, basal insulin. um, And you might take at least two or three meds to control your blood pressure, which is extremely important, um, and at least one to keep your cholesterol at goal, which have gotten uh, more stringent goals lately because the data shows the lower the cholesterol, the better in, in, in a way. So adherence is a big problem in type 2s. I've heard you say so many times that uh, in type 2s, because there's not that many symptoms of high blood pressure, high cholesterol level, high glucose, that there's no sense of urgency. So um, what do you say to our listeners who have type 2 and we're telling them that part of the problem may be that they're not taking their medications regularly? Yeah, I'm glad we're going to talk about that. So you and I know that it is a commonly held belief by people with diabetes and by healthcare providers and to some degree by all of us that, you know, the fewer medications I'm taking that means I'm healthier. And it's partly true. Like, I think we all feel that way. Like, you know, I'm thinking about all the medications I take. I'd rather be taking fewer of them as well. And I do have it in my head, that would mean I'm doing better. That would mean I'm healthier. However, there's a big problem when you're thinking that way. Because we know too many people who say, well, because I want to be healthy, I'm going to refuse to take any of the medications that have been recommended to me. You know, I have a family member, for example, who um, has terribly high glucose values, blood pressure, and doesn't want to take any medications. Not because he's a bad person, but because he actually wants to be healthy. So I think what we do is try to help people understand 
the best way to figure out whether you're in a healthy place with your diabetes, a safe place with your diabetes, is to take a look at your numbers. It's to take a look at, is your A1C in a safe place, your blood pressure, your cholesterol levels. And that if you need to be on medications, even multiple medications to get there, that's a win. I have to remind myself of that all the time. I'm on two blood pressure medications. And I think of them as vitamins that actually work. Um, they're, they're something that actually helps me to be in a safe place with my blood pressure. But you don't like being on medications. You've told me that. I don't. So you're just faking it on the podcast. No, I do not. I much prefer to not be on any medications for my blood pressure. But in truth, even when I go back and talk about it with my own physician, he'll say, well, how's your blood pressure? And I go, well, it's perfect. And he goes, oh, so I guess they're working. And there is often this sort of funny push-pull between I'd rather be on fewer meds and I want to be in a safe place with my numbers. And it is our job to really help people to realize that being on fewer meds, if it's keeping you from being in a safe place with your numbers, is really hurting you. So it's a, it's a bigger issue. It's a tough issue to talk about. And I think a lot of people struggle with it. You know, they often think about medications as like, uh, uh, you know, toxins or poisons that work against them because of all the things they may hear about and from Facebook groups and other places. But, you know, we have some pride in our med- medications and how well they work and how well they've been working to keep people safe and to keep people healthy over the course of years. We know that our most common medications have made an enormous difference to help people get in a safe place and live long, long lives with diabetes. You and I know that. But again, I think for a lot of folks, they're not quite so certain that's really true. And it's our job to help with that. Yeah, I mean, unfortunately, there's a perception that if the medication is a prescription item, if it comes from a pharmaceutical company, then that is not good. But then, if you want to get me going hot this morning, (laughs) talk about all the supplements with false promises that are out there, uh, sucking people in with false hopes that they're going to cure their diabetes, avoid complications with basically a placebo or even something that could actually hurt you. So I, I think that that is so important, Bill. And I think the other myth that w- ties into this whole topic, that in order to avoid complications, glucose is the only important number. We know that uh, heart disease is the most common cause of passing away for both people with type 1 and type 2. And that brings in cholesterol, blood pressure, and of course, uh, weight, which plays an important role. So I think that's that's a myth that we want to, you know, get rid of right away, that you have to really look at all the important issues. We always call it the ABCs. Right. And I think the problem has been is that in the field of diabetes, we've been over-focused on, on glucose. We've been over-focused on blood sugars. And, you know, I think the word is finally slowly but surely getting out that if you want to live a long and healthy life, it's about the ABCs. It's controlling not just your A1C, but it is your blood pressure and cholesterol levels, and it's all three. And again, I think we still have a lot of work to do to help people see that. Yeah. Seems, I, oh. seems like a never-ending battle, but please. Yeah. <laughs> you know, just uh, I wanted to highlight something about how incredibly effective our blood pressure and cholesterol medications are. There was a, a recent announcement um, that is so such good news, and it was written in such a funny way. Um, and I, I still remember when I saw it, I, I just laughed. And the headline was, cancer is now the leading cause of death for people with diabetes. 
And I'm, I'm, I got so many messages from folks on how upset they were about this. And they said, well, what's happened? Why are there so many cases of cancer? And I go, no, that's not what this means. It means heart disease, which used to be the leading cause, we're now doing such a good job of controlling that people aren't dying of heart disease so much anymore. So the cancer rates aren't up, I don't believe. I don't think the cancer rates are up at all. It's the only thing that's left because unfortunately we're all mortal, so something's going to get you. But it's actually sort of this hidden good news behind this story that was not presented correctly. That's awesome, the glass half full versus half empty. Exactly. That is awesome. Now, this next one, I think, is really for most of our folks with type 2. The main reason why most people with type 2 diabetes are heavy is because they have no willpower. And they ate themselves into getting diabetes. That's a big topic. Though. Right. And if you just had some more willpower, you could probably lose the weight and reverse your di- diabetes. It's really all about willpower. You don't need Ozempic. Right. <laughs> yeah. So, you know, I... I you know, I've been working in the field of diabetes for a long time. I can talk about my diabetes experience, but here I get to talk about just purely being a psychologist. Look, I want everyone to hear this very clearly. This is not a willpower problem. I promise you. It's not that you don't have enough willpower. It's not that if we somehow just gave you an injection of willpower, everything would just be great. If you're struggling with your weight, it's because of other factors. It has to do with things you could talk about, Steve, so well. Biological factors, genetic factors. We could talk about the powerful environmental factors. We are, in America, living in a giant feedlot. We are overfed. There's too much. We, we know the portion sizes are bigger. We know what we can tra- We can actually trace those changes back to decisions made by the Department of Agriculture in the 70s and the 80s. Bill, we know me, what's happened. Pass me another donut, Leo, <laughs> while we're talking. <laughs> you know, so we know there's all these other factors that don't have to do with you that contribute to make uh, managing one's weight, whether you have type 2 diabetes or not, an enormous challenge. And every expert I know in this, in this country, not just someone who's writing some ridiculous book and making all these claims, recognizes that we are fairly humbled in the face of helping people manage their weight and lose weight. Now, as we know, we have some new awesome class of medications that's now helping people a lot. But aside from that, in terms of looking at behavior change, there's been lots and lots of studies. We know we can help some people, and there's some usefulness of these approaches. But this is tough. And if you're having a tough time thinking about managing your type 2 diabetes or struggling with your weight, just know this is, we need to let go of all this shame and blame. It, you didn't do this, and you're not doing this. You know, you remember my famous uh, slides when we used to do face-to-face, Bill, uh, talking about the uh, metabolic syndrome in people with type 2 diabetes, that their particular body shape, and it's a certain type of body shape, like more central obesity, more of the, uh, for lack of a better word, the beer belly, and it's a certain type of fat, visceral fat, intra-abdominal fat, and that is a certain type of fat that's associated with type 2, high blood pressure, abnormal cholesterol, abnormal glucose levels, and that is uh, a very dangerous type of fat to have, and it's part of the whole genetic metabolic syndrome, and it's just quite different, and it's, it's almost impossible 
to lose as well. Many people with type 2 have a big abdominal panis, but their arms and legs are perfectly fine. And so it's very frustrating, and it's not the same thing as the subcutaneous fat, the kind you can squeeze with your fingers, and you you know you can lose weight as you reduce your calories. So it's a... It's a very tough thing to address in people with type 2 diabetes. It's an important distinction. And by the way, as we've been so negative about all this, I just also want to highlight that it doesn't mean that you're helpless. Um, We know that losing weight is possible. It is just a significant challenge, and it can be very difficult, especially if you don't have access to some of our newer Incretin medications. Um, It is doable, but it's effort and it's time that you may not have. It's resources that you may not have. Um, it is um, uh, these kinds of factors that make it um, remarkably challenging. So we don't want, I don't want people to think that's hopeless, but just recognize if you struggle now, you're not alone, and that we understand a lot of those reasons why that is, and it's not willpower, and it's not something that you should be shamed and blamed about. Yeah, that's so true, Bill. Well, some of our most popular... Most listened to podcasts, most watched videos are on uh, dietary issues. In mm. fact, um, one of our most popular podcasts is on intermittent fasting. Mm-hmm. So people are always looking for ways uh, to help keep their weight down. And I think it's worth spending one minute talking about these GLP-1 receptor agonists. The first one was Bieta many, many years ago, and then Bidurion, and then came on Trulicity, uh, and Ozembic. Victoza. Victoza, thank you. Uh, and then the higher dose ones, they realize the higher the dose, the more weight they lose. And then they realize that these medications also uh, protect people from heart attacks and strokes. And most recently, uh, Ozembic has been shown to reduce uh, congestive heart failure in people without diabetes who have weight problems. And then when you use these drugs at higher doses, the FDA... Uh, makes the drug companies call them a different name mm-hmm. and they have a different indication. That's Wegovi and Saxenda. And of course, then those Monjaro, uh, the most recent uh, blockbuster GLP-1, GIP combo. I, mean, I know I'm getting pretty uh, technical here, but it's a whole class of compounds that really work to help not only improve glucose, but also reduce the appetite, induce satiety, and help people lose weight. And I do believe that if these folks... Ha- did their other means like behavior modification, uh, increasing the exercise, you know, appropriately, slowly with a partner. I think all of those together really can lead to significant and healthy weight loss and maybe even maintain it over the long term. Um, and I would say I'll finish up my little <laughs> diatribe here with uh, a lot of people say, well, I have to take this drug forever. What do you say to that? I don't know. What can I say? I don't know. Um, you may, but we don't know. I mean, what's been fascinating in, in the 35-plus years you and I have been working in the field of diabetes, if not longer, this is the first time because of this class of medications, GLP-1s, I think we can really feel a sense of hope that we, can, we have something that can help people to actually make a difference in terms of weight management. And we're learning all the time about what degree that needs to be complemented by behavioral interventions and behavioral support in a way that can really make a difference for folks over the course of time. And of course, we also have some challenges in making these drugs affordable for people as well. Um, So how long will they have to take them for? I think we have a lot to learn about whether that needs to be 
a chronic medication one takes forever or whether it will be some way for people to lower their dose or discontinue them. Let's find out together. And let me tell you, listeners, when Bill Polonsky says, I don't know, no one knows. So (laughs) now you've all, and and just to say the support is important because you've told me about a patient of yours who uh, really was successful going to a Facebook group called the Ozembic Wegovi Facebook group, and everyone supports each other, getting through the initial titration stage where there may be some nausea. And, you know, that that is extremely helpful. And um, I, sh- I should also say that when you mentioned access, uh, access, you know, these drugs aren't cheap. Uh, drug companies are finally realizing that, you know, over the long term, even the short term, they could save money on, you know, heart attacks, strokes, uh, illnesses and uh, medic- things that are related to weight, like esophageal reflux spasm or arthritis and many other issues. So I'm hoping that they are more accepted by the payers of this country, and then we can figure out ways to get it to folks who may not have insurance or may not have good insurance. Yeah, if out-of-pocket costs for these medications come down, we're going to have a celebration. Yeah, that's for sure. And, you know, we, we, we did it with insulin, so we can do it with GLP-1. I want to say last thing about this, this class that relates to some of our myths and about how people do not like taking prescription drugs. GLP-1 stands for, ready for this, glucagon-like peptide 1. It's a natural hormone present in all of our bodies. In people that have excess weight problems or type 2 diabetes, they don't have enough. So this is a medication that stimulates a natural hormone in our bodies. It's not synthesized in some factory in Ohio. Uh, you know, why? <laughs> Bill's looking at me. Like, let's take metformin. Metformin's a great drug. It was, it was discovered and produced. It's produced in a lab. It's not mimicking a natural hormone that is metformin in our body. So Mm -hmm. for all you folks that like natural things, I wanted to say that as well. Okay. Okay. This is a serious topic. Um, Oh, now it's going to get serious? Well, this one is a tougher one. (laughs) Okay. I'm going to let you address it because I know you have many patients that believe that the lower the glucose... Yeah. Well, you and I have talked about this many times. I think because we now have devices and technologies and medications that really allow people to be more successful, I think we're running into this very funny problem. And I'm not quite sure I understand the problem or even what to do about it yet, but perhaps many of our listeners will understand this. The issue is, so what is your goal? What is your A1C goal? What is your time and range goal? What is your glucose goal? Have you and your healthcare provider had a serious discussion about what's the target you should aim for, at which point you can look at yourself and say, hey, I made it. I'm safe. And we know what we have been saying to people for years, like, hey, you know, if you can get to an A1C less than 7.0%, you're good. You know, as you and I know so well, there's another organization, ACE, that says, no, no, you should aim for a A1C goal of 6.5%. And now we're talking about maybe that should be adjusted for different people, depending on stage of life and other reasons and problems they may have run into. Um, maybe we should raise that if they're having trouble with lows, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. So, but what we've seen is people kind of, sort of, with their healthcare providers making their own interesting choices. Like, well, maybe my goal should be 6.0%. Maybe my time and range goal, if I'm on continuous glucose monitor, should be 90% time and range. And 
I keep asking, why? What is the benefit? What, what is the benefit of, of aiming for a time and range of 90%? What's the benefit of aiming for an A1C goal of 6.0%? We know how many of our patients are addicted to this idea of the lower, the better. And I kind of understand it. If I was in their position, I might even feel similarly. But where's the evidence And I just don't think we're talking enough about this. You know, the best evidence we have is pretty darn old, right? It comes from the DCCT study completed in 1993. And what we saw, right, is the uh, once you get below an A1C of 7.0%, the added benefit, meaning the added benefit of reducing your risk for complications, gets pretty teeny tiny. So I don't have an answer for this. I'm just increasingly disquieted by this, that how many people are, it's almost like they're playing a video game and they want to win, are aiming for unreasonably tight or low glycemic or glucose targets without any evidence that it's going to pay off and it might be driving them crazy. Or like you talked about, it might be driving their partners crazy, if especially if it leads to them having a lot of trouble with lows. I don't know. What do you think? Well, you know, Bill, I, I, I do know. And you mentioned the evidence that they've done so many studies that if you can get your A1C to 7, you avoid most of the diabetic, what we call eye, kidney, and nerve disease, microvascular complications. And as you said correctly, uh, as you push your A1C down lower, the incremental benefit is tiny. But one thing you didn't emphasize enough is that the rate of severe hypoglycemia goes up. And um, so they've looked at this level. So I do know that six is not needed. Uh, It's unnecessary. And if someone can get down to six without hypo, uh, our our motto is more power to you. Go for it. But many people cannot do that. They have a ton of lows, even if they're wearing a continuous glucose monitor. Part of the problem is when we look at our lab data, it says what's normal, what isn't for the A1C. You know, the, the... they, they confuse the range, what you should be if you don't have diabetes, to what the range should be if you do have diabetes. So, of course, A1C less than 6 is no diabetes for the general public, but less than 7 is the goal. So people sort of get those confused. And they also are afraid of complications. Sure. People will say, I want to, I want to be in that non-diabetic range, that right. normal range of, you know, A1C of 5.7% or less, because I want to reduce my risk of complications. And, you know, if they, as you mentioned, if they can pull this off with our latest devices and technology and really continue to have a low risk of hypoglycemia, and you say more power to them, if they're driving themselves crazy and they're working really hard, is it worth it? I mean, you know, with so many of my patients, I say, look, I think of you trying to keep your A1C under 7.0%. You're trying to be safe. It's like when you go drive your car, you always put on your seatbelt. Good for you. But by trying to keep your A1C way lower, say 6.0%, it's sort of the equivalent of saying, so when you go out driving, you put on your seatbelt and you always wear a helmet because you want to be safe. And I guess you're kind of right. I mean, if you're driving all the time and you're wearing a helmet and you're driving behind the wheel of your car, you're going to look kind of stupid. 
I wear a helmet when I do my Peloton. <laughs> but yeah, is there is there really a payoff? I, my th- I think the answer is we don't really know um, how much of an added benefit there is. I just think this is an issue we don't talk about enough, especially in this new era where this is possible. Yeah. Well, you're bringing in the whole psychological part of it. Um, you know, and I wasn't even thinking there, but you're right. If people uh, go through so much effort to get to the A1C of six without hypo, then is it worth it? You know, and I, I, I think there are people who can get much lower than they've ever done before without hypo that aren't driving themselves crazy. You've been to my yes. clinic. You fell asleep. It was so boring. Oh, so Every, boring. Everybody had good A1Cs. So well, I hated that. I hated it. <laughs> run me out of business. Yeah. So, I mean, I think um, it is an important issue. And I think I look at it as a uh, endocrinologist, as a safety issue. And, uh, you know, there are people that we send to you that have some serious uh, misunderstandings about low blood sugar and desires to be low and stay low. Now, Bill, in the olden days, you and I sadly uh, used to give talks on um, people who would pass away from hypoglycemia called the dead in bed syndrome. I don't want to scare everybody. It doesn't happen hardly at all. And unfortunately, if you don't have access to a CGM, and it's a long story, but it's an important issue. And I think that's that's important for everyone to know that if you can get your A1C around seven, you are in a safe place. Now, one thing I don't like the word safe, Bill, I'm meaning to tell you this, uh, you know, if your A1C is safe, how do you know you're not having a lot of hypo? Then you're not safe. Good now, point. time in range, time below range, you know. So, you Well, know. you have to help me come up with a better word. We, we just don't like you saying good and bad, high and low, again, because there's so much judgment and shame about it. Um, and if safe isn't right, uh, you're going to have to have a whole other podcast and find a better word. Yeah, yeah. Well, <clears throat> I, I, the A1C is on the way out, and the CGM metrics are on the way in. Here, here. Okay, I want to finish up with a really positive myth once we explain it. People with diabetes... Most people with diabetes have reduced life expectancy. And that is such a strong feeling out there that if you have diabetes, you just don't live as long. Yeah. And of course, the reason why would people think that? Because that's what they've been told. That's what they often heard. That's what they have actually read about. And, you know, we've done, we've studied that particular sense of despair and hopelessness that people often feel. We've done it all over the world. And it is by far the most highly endorsed, most common negative belief people have who are living with both type 1 and type 2 diabetes. That diabetes is going to get me, that I'm doomed by this disease. It's going to kill me sooner than it would other people. And, you know, when I hear that from folks, my common response is, oh, that's so 20th century. Because in truth, (laughs) that used to be true. That used to be true. Yeah. That's the problem. It it definitely used to be true. And it is true in certain uh, underdeveloped countries, unfortunately. Yeah. And as we know, and as we've talked about all the time, it isn't diabetes itself that's going to reduce your life risk or and lead to the development of long-term complications. It's out-of-control diabetes. And that, as you've heard me say a million times... Say, that, it, say it strongly. <laughs> say it strongly. You know, we know, you know, the uh, with good effort and uh, good support from a healthcare team, odds are pretty good you can live a long and healthy life with diabetes. And people are awfully profoundly surprised when we talk about this. And, of course, we don't just say it. We show evidence. You know, here's the evidence that supports this. And we know that evidence is getting better and better all the time. 
with good effort, odds are pretty good you can live a long and healthy life with diabetes. Yeah, and you and I have showed bonafide studies Absolutely. in type 1 and type 2 that if you control your diabetes, you may live longer than someone of the same age, mm-hmm. the same sex, without diabetes. You got to tell them about your famous t-shirt that people go around wearing at our conferences. <laughs> well, we have t-shirts and on mugs, actually. So, you know, uh, we always like, we use, it's a true-false question, of course. Many of our listeners will be familiar with it, which is that, you know, diabetes is the leading cause of, oh, I'm sorry, I said it wrong, is well-controlled diabetes is the leading cause of nothing. And that's the message we want people to hear. Well-controlled diabetes is the leading cause of nothing. Yeah. And that's why we're here. That's why, you're, that's why TCOID exists. Well, Bill, um, what a great note to end on. Thank you so much for being a personal friend and a supporter of TCOID uh, and and spending your whole career dedicated to the behavioral and emotional issues of people with diabetes. And if you're interested in going to Bill's website, behavioraldiabetes.org. You might have to look up how to spell it, but uh, you will get there. Thanks, Bill. Thanks. Glad to be with you, Steve.